Let's read the text, Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council, let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. For the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Neither ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments and wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun would dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. His car is a strong donkey laying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear the burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow bought by a spring, its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crowning of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with 
the blessings appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Lord, as we are in this type of swang song, prayer, poetic blessing and almost dirge of Jacob, Lord, we pray that again you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and this unique portion of scripture, Lord, which is both going to the mountain peaks of glory, but even down into depths of cursing, Lord. We pray that you'd give us insight and wisdom. You've given it to us for a purpose, Lord, to understand it, and then also to apply it. And so we pray, Lord, by your spirit we could do that, and we give you praise and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen. And now I'm starting my sermon clock. Last week I started the sermon talking about hiking, and I will do so again this morning. When I was at Master's College, I had a professor that was a mentor, and he mentored me in, in many ways. He's the one that took me to India on my first tri- on my first mission trips ever was to India, and he led the trip. But he also mentored me in, in hiking. And I can remember he was so old. He had to be at least 55. And I was probably, I think, 21 at the time. And we hiked all over the Sierra Nevadas, all over, both in California as well as in Nevada. And what was always remarkable to me is, though I was much faster than him, he had much more endurance. I could run around him. I could beat him, get to a certain place quicker, but if the hike was over 10 miles one way, then he just wouldn't stop. He would just plod. And he had something just called, he had a a resting step. It's almost like one of his legs would completely rest when he took a step and then put the other one down. He just kept going up and down, up and down. And so I asked him, what's the secret? Because you, you you always make it, and you just keep going on and on and on and on and on. What's the secret? His name was Jim. Jim Owen. Not John Owen, Jim Owen. And he just said, I, I just think about the next step. Can I just go one more step? Can I go one more step? However, he did say that there are certain things you shouldn't do. And one time we were hiking in Nevada... I think it was Mount Troy. And he said, one of the things that you don't do, Tom, is when you're coming down a mountain and you're on top of shale, like loose rock, be sure that you stay at least 100 feet 
from the person in front of you, if you're in back and, and you're coming down, stay about 100 feet back and off to the side in case if you hit a rock loose, you're not going to hit the guy in front of you, down from you. And I said, yes, Jim, yes, Jim, of course. So we start hiking, and I didn't really listen to what he said, and I got up kind of close to him, and I stepped on some shale, and a piece of rock, a shale, maybe about this big, began to tumble, and it hit him right in the back of the calf. So that caused him some amount of pain, (laughs) and he had some words of encouragement to give to me. (laughs) And if you knew Jim, you would understand what I mean when I say words of encouragement, but I will leave it there. He's a godly man, but he could have very specific words of encouragement (laughs) (laughs) there were, in other words, consequences for what I did. I wasn't thinking. I didn't really truly believe or maybe even care what he had to say. Because of that, I hurt him. Hurt myself emotionally. Hurt him physically. And I learned that when you hike, oftentimes, you know, you're going up and down, left and right, you're climbing, you're climbing down, that there can be difficulties and dangers. You know, I've seen, I've sat down and heard something when I was hiking and turned around and right here, there's a copperhead snake. I've been, I've hiked before with my family and my dad and my brother when by accident I stuck a stick in a yellow jacket's nest and all the yellow jackets stormed out of the nest and it was a big yellow cloud and my dad said, run boys, run! And we ran down the mountain. It took us two hours to get up, about 20 minutes to get down and we would get out in front of the yellow jackets and start putting on afterbite and then we heard and you would turn around and you could literally see a cloud of yellow going I'm not exaggerating. I'm probably under-exaggerating. And there were drops and cliffs, and we were all sliding and falling and jumping. I'm very shocked that none of us broke a leg. And My brother got 27 stings, and he's allergic to them. I got seven, and my dad got one. Now, I think at that time, he was probably 55 in my age. Now, I never saw him run that fast ever before in my life. I was shocked. There can be many difficulties in in hiking, but there can also be things of of beauty. I've seen bald eagles. I've been out on this plateau in Nevada and and looked up, and it was hard almost to see black. In the middle of the night, I would look up, and all I saw was almost stars. And I think that night I saw about 23 shooting stars when I had seen maybe three my whole life. Groves of aspens and all kinds of beautiful wild animals. That's part of the joy of hiking, just seeing great, fantastic beauty. But then also here and there, sooner or later, there's going to be some some obstacles. There's going to be some things that are dangerous. That's part of the the thrill, the the journey of hiking, is that eventually you're going to have things go wrong. Life is very similar to this. As we're on the journey of life, we go up and down, we go left and right. 
And there are both blessings and there are woes. There are good things that happen, but there are also difficulties. There are decisions that we make that are going to have significant consequences. For better or for worse. And we see this in Genesis 49. But we have to ask the question is, why is Genesis 49 here? Why is the Holy Spirit given this section to us? And I think we can see it this way, and you have this in your notes. Though life can be up and down, left or right, there can be canyons. You can slip and you can slide and you can stumble and you can bust your knee. All kinds of different things can happen to you and to others. What do you do? Well, as Jim Owen said, you take one more what? You take one more step. You're going up and down, you're going left and right. Life can be fantastic. Life can be really difficult. What do you do? Can you take one more step? You take one more step. So we can, I think, formulate the theme this way. Keep pressing forward as God's agents because the Lord decides what will happen. And he's decided that the whole universe will be underneath the reign of Christ forever and forever and forever. And that's what Genesis 49 ultimately is saying. Even to the people of Israel that are receiving this book, Genesis, and to you and I and the church today, this section of scripture, Genesis 49, is basically saying, keep going forward because all those Yellow jackets, that that rock that tumbled down and, and hit my friend. Though there were things that I did that caused that, all of that was the part of the plan of God. Ultimately, God was including all of those in his story. And ultimately, the, the destination is going to be absolutely glorious. Better than seeing a waterfall, better than seeing a, a lake, better than having a view of all this mountain chain and seeing even uh, El Capitan and all those mountains up there in Yosemite and, and all of those beautiful things. Better than all of that is being with Christ and reigning with Christ and having the whole universe summed up under Christ. And that's ultimately what this chapter is referring to. So I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I am going to take some time to just briefly point out how I can say what I just said. So I've just said Genesis 49 is basically, look, life is difficult. And until you get to heaven, not all of life, but life will stink at times. What do you do? You keep going forward. Never give up. Never give in. Because forever and forever and forever and forever, life is going to be incredibly, infinitely glorious and awesome. Not yet, but forever and forever and forever and forever. So how can I say this? Well, just very quickly, and we're not getting into all the different points of this, but this is just, how can I say that this is what Genesis 49 is about? Well, a huge theme of the whole book of Genesis, Genesis 1, says that you were created in the image of God. You bear the image of God in the sense that you're God's ambassadors and you're God's agents. 
part of that, then, is your message to yourself, to your loved ones, to the world, is that God created the world. God is in charge of the world. God is the one that is telling the story. It's his world. He's planned it. He purposes all things. Second, again, the Israelites, as they receive this book, the book of Genesis, and even the whole Pentateuch, they have been redeemed, they've been saved, and now they are going to the promised land. We're going to heaven. We have our eyes fixed on on Christ and heaven. These Israelites have their eyes fixed on the promise that God gave to them. They're going to the promised land. And they should have their eyes fixed on Yahweh and then on the promise. That is of the promised land. We should have our eyes fixed on Jesus and the, the glories of the reality of heaven. A world of perfect love and power and grace forever and ever and ever. Third, as I read this, I hope you saw how many times it talks about blessing. There are some hard things that this passage talks about. But verse 25, it talks about blessings. One, two, three, four, five. And then chapter 28, I'm sorry, verse 28 also talks about blessings. In fact, Genesis 49 is a chapter in the Bible that has some of the most blessings in it in terms of the word itself. That is, this passage is pointing out that God does bring curses and woes, but God also brings out glory and wonderful things. And there's more blessings and glory in this passage than there are woes. Four, and again, I'm just talking about, and you don't have to write these down, but I'm just, again, trying to point out why that I, I can say that ultimately this passage, I believe it's applicational theme is that life is up and down, is left and right, there's cliffs, there's dangers, there's bears, maybe tigers and lions, all kinds of things can happen in life, right? A few years ago, Lisa had cancer. Some of you have had cancer. All kinds of things can happen. What do we do? We keep going. We keep going forward. Forward to where? Toward Christ. For the Israelites, faith in Yahweh and keep pressing on to the promised land. How can we say that? Well, verse 10 talks about Shiloh. And we'll get into this much, much more. But verse 10 and 11 and 12 are all about the Messiah. They're all about Jesus. Even verse 18 actually is pointing to Jesus, to the Messiah, to Christ. The historical context, remember, and we already alluded to this, but for Israel, they're stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. And you you may remember, when I was young, I've shared this with you before, when it said wilderness, my understanding of wilderness was a Florida wilderness. So if you're in the wilderness in Florida, what kind of wilderness is that? It's a swamp. It's a jungle. That's not where Israel was. (laughs) They were in the desert for 40 years. And they didn't have Amazon. What would they do? They didn't have Amazon. They didn't have a food service. They couldn't call. What they had is God giving manna, but even then, they complained about it. And they lived in tents. I don't think they even had porta-potties. Life was very uncomfortable for them. Very difficult. And God had made a promise. Here's the promised land. Because 10 out of 12 spies, messengers... 
messengers disobeyed and didn't have faith, none of the parents made it to the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. They, they all died. Hope and promises in one sense unfulfilled must have been in their mind. So I bring all that up to say that Genesis 49 has a context of reality that we need to understand. These people that are receiving this, either their parents have or their parents are going to die and not enjoy the promise that God said he gave to Israel. And they didn't receive the promise fully and enjoy it because of lack of faith. And so as they're in the wilderness, they receive the book of Genesis. And they receive Genesis 49 from one of the heroes of their faith, Jacob, a patriarch. And I believe the message then that they would receive from this would be basically, yes, keep going to that promise that God is giving you. God is in control of all things, the good and the bad, and ultimately the Messiah is is going to win. Keep going forward. There will be difficult times. Keep going forward. Now, if you are on a journey, even on a hike, I don't think a cell phone has this. Maybe they, it has it now. But when I used to hike with my friend Jim, he would always have a map, and the map would be from the Sierra Club, and the map would be a written map. It would basically be a sheet of paper, sometimes animated, no cell phones. And in the corner, it would have a map key. And you would look at that, and that would, t- that would give you different markers of interpretation for the map. As we look at Genesis 49, a key word that we can use is map keys. As we're on this journey of, okay, I have to keep going forward. Life can just be so tiring, and at times I I can just despair. I need to keep going forward. How do I do that? Well, there are different map keys in this text that we can key in on, that we can focus on, that will help us. And this morning, probably just going to look at two. So here's the first one, the first map key, or the first key, if you want. Keep pressing forward by trusting that God has the future perfectly in his hands. Keep pressing forward, trusting that God holds the future in his hands. You don't hold the future, your future, in your hands. You don't hold your children's future in your hands. You don't hold your spouse's future in your hands. God holds everybody's future in his hands. And this is one of the themes of this passage. The destinies of these tribes include thousands of individuals. So it's not just a tribe at large, it is, but even also the destinies of individuals are included within these tribes. Whether it's a nation, whether it's the nation of Israel, other nations, whether it's the tribes, they still compromise individuals. And their future is mapped out by God. Now, this is really a significant point of this text, and I don't think I have to take the time to go back and show you each one, but we can start off right away. And if you look at Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and you can go on through you can go through the whole list. God is telling them about their future. Here's what's going to happen to you as a tribe. 
here's what's going to happen. Here's going to be your destiny. For example, even of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. He's talking about the Messiah, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Did that happen? Yes. That's what Matthew 1 and even think, is it Luke 1 or Luke 2, is all about. That ultimately, Christ was born from the line of David, which came from the line of Judah. That wasn't by accident. It wasn't just that it kind of happened and God then, it wasn't just that God looked forward into the future and said, okay, I see what's going to happen, so... I'll just write this down. Rather, God arranged it to happen this way. This is what verse 10 is saying of chapter 49. This is the way it's going to be. That is, the future is already pre-planned by God. God is in charge. God determines the future. Whether it's Benjamin, Naphtali, and then also all the peoples that are part of that. And we'll look at this a little bit later. Both large groups and smaller groups are all, all their histories, all their destinies are predetermined, pre-planned by God. That's why Psalm 103 says toward the end, it might be verse 19 or 18, God's sovereignty is over all things. God rules. So for the Israelites and context, reading Genesis 49 then, they would interpret that to mean Pharaoh ultimately is not in charge. He's not in charge, right? We've seen God deliver us from Pharaoh, who also ultimately is not in charge. Who has the future in their hands? Moses? Does Moses hold the future in his hands? No, he does not. What about some kind of global investment firm? Do they hold the future in their hands? No. Is there any prime minister that holds the future of the universe and of the earth, even of the nation, foundationally and ultimately in their hands? No. Any president, any army? No. Any any person or, or man that's very capable, like a mighty man that belonged to the army of King David, did they ultimately hold their own destiny and of their family and of Israel and of the world in their own hand? No. Only the triune God in Isaiah chapter 40 has the power where all the nations are like a drop of water in a bucket. That's what Isaiah 40 talks about when it talks about the power of God. And here, God is saying, this is what's going to happen to all these different tribes. And this is not counting out individual destinies, but these tribes, here's what they're going to face, and here's what's going to happen. Now, to clarify, you're not a puppet, but you can't pull a fast one and escape from God's plan. When God gives the prehistory here of what's going to happen, it is a type of prophetic authority. You can see that in verse 1. Assemble yourself that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. And the days to come sounds a lot like eschatology. 
and the days to come and, and the future days that are coming. Here's what God is going to do. And here Jacob, it seems, is speaking with the prophetic authority of God. In other words, it's not just this general saying that Jacob is, you know, I don't like what you did and I'm kind of mad at you. But rather it's God through Jacob that is saying, here is what's going to happen. Here's the history, the, the, the destiny of your peoples. And God also has a destiny for each one of us. Now, there's a, a sense which we can say, I don't want to miss out on the plan of God for my life. Now, I understand when we say that, and I, and I understand what you mean. But there's also a sense in which you can't frustrate God in a sense where God is like, ah, Tom's in the wrong place, and I wanted Tom to stay in India. But he went back to the U.S. Oh, man, I'm going to have to go now to plan Z5. Oh, this is like the thousandth time I've tried to get Tom to a certain place. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not, now what am I going to do? Oh, look at Simeon. Look at Joseph. Look at Judah. Look at Saul. Look at Elijah. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. What am I going to do? No, Psalm 2 says the Lord does what? Psalm 2 says that people's devise vain things and they take God's fetters and they toss them down on the ground. That's Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. And then Psalm 2, verse 4 says what? How does the Lord respond? Does he cry? Does he weep? There can be some sorrow with the Lord. But Psalm 2, 4 says, well, what does God do? He laughs. I'm saying that to say that these tribes, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and we ourselves, Though we disobey God, it's not in sense which somehow we've jumped out of God's story and His and, and, and His ultimate decreed script, and that God was like, "Oh man, now I have to go back to the drawing board of Tom." That's not the God of the Bible. So then, this is either good news or very bad news. <laughs> What happens to the tribes of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, to them themselves, but even to their tribes and the peoples in them, it's either very good news or bad news, depending upon how you view God. Right? That God is the one that's ultimately in control of all things. That God is even over sin and even over Satan. Right, like in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where Peter talks about, and the Holy Spirit through Peter says that, yes, it was wrong. Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Romans and the peoples and the Jews, they murdered Jesus. That's sin. That was wrong. But it was all by the, not just that God allowed it, but it was all what? The predetermined plan of God. So how you view God then 
and how close you are to him would determine whether or not this is good news or bad news, right? Think about the Israelites. They were wandered around in the promised land. Are there at Mount Sinai and they've just received the book of Genesis. However they view God when they read this section and they read that God is the one that judges man according to God's own will. God determines who gets judged and who gets blessed. God determines that ultimately. How do you respond? If you view that God is is holy and wise and righteous and gracious and loving, then that's going to help you to respond in a certain way. But if you view God as he's far away and he's unholy and he's an ogre and he's demanding and and out of touch, then that's going to give a different response. And I think this is the reason why this is being given to the nation Israel, to to help them. We need to give him our trust and our glory. We trust that he has our future in his hands, that he does have a plan. Is your future secure? Yes, and we've said this many times. Certainly we want to have some extra food, water, Extra supplies, yes. That, that, that's wise. But is that what makes your future secure? No, God makes your future secure. The Lord does. And so that's what he's telling the Israelites. That's why in, later we'll see in Numbers, we won't preach Numbers, but as you read through the Old Testament about Israel, that God is telling them, look toward me, Trust me, I'll give you water from a rock. I'll give you quail as much more than you can eat from the sky. I'll give you manna every day. Whatever you need to continue to go on will be yours. God will provide until it's time for you to die, like Lazarus does in John 11, and be of the Lord. God's going to give you what you need to survive. God's going to give Israel what they need until they make it into the promised land. Further, yes, there are psalms like Psalm 42 where David says, Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, is this going to continue to go on? Or you have the whole book of Lamentations, which is Jeremiah looking at Jerusalem, which has been ravaged and destroyed, and he's weeping. And so when we say that God has preordained all things that take place, even even hard times and bad times and difficulties, it's not that there's no responsibility or liability for people or, or human agency or that we can't express ourselves to God. We can. That's why in verse 18, what does it say? Jacob says, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. So in this second scripture where Jacob is saying, here's what's going to happen to all these different tribes. Right in the middle of it, he says, oh Lord, I wait for your salvation. Lord, save us. Even Jesus, our Savior, before he went to the cross, what did he do? He prayed earnestly so hard when he was sweating, blood came out, and he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. But it said he was sorrowful to the point of death. So we're not saying, in other words, God is sovereign over all things. 
So if somebody's going through a very, 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 very difficult time, you're just like, buck up! God's sovereign. We're not saying that. But rather, we are saying, because God is sovereign over all things, He has a purpose and He has a plan. We don't know everything about that plan, but we know He's good and His plan is to help us ultimately to be like Jesus and to grow us in our faith. So by God's grace, can we take one more step and trust Him? That's why I think this has been given to the nation Israel and then to us. I think a passage I find myself going back to often is Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. The passage talks about how the Israelites were making their own gods and were carrying them over their heads. And God basically says, that's not wise, that's dumb. Instead, I will carry you, verse 4. And then verse 10, God says, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. End of verse 11, truly I've spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you're stubborn minded. Isaiah 46 is saying very clearly that God is in control of all things. He has written the history from the beginning to the very end, and everything that he's purposed, he will complete it. All that God has purposed in your life, he's going to complete it. Is that true? Is God going to fail doing his work in your life? Now, we may not understand certain things. I don't understand a lot of things in my life. (laughs) But I understand this. That God is holy, He is all powerful, and He will never fail. And it may take all the way till I get to heaven to understand what God was doing. It may take that long for me to understand. Not because God is so mysterious, but because I'm so spiritually a, a numbskull. Right? We can even, and even John brought this out teaching through John 11 this morning. You know, the disciples, Thomas and even Peter and others, didn't always get what Jesus was doing, did they? They didn't always get it. And we don't always get what God is doing in our lives. Lord, what are you doing? We may not fully get it until we get to heaven, not because God is somehow unclear, but because we're slow. Perhaps you can say it this way, as we burn this, as we bring this first map key to a close. God, he, he does not speculate with your life. I, I've never really done stocks. I have some stocks. I think I look at it like every six years. That, that's basically all I do. <laughs> okay. I have no idea how any of the stocks or anything like that works. I, I'm clueless. But I know there can, you know, you, you weigh things and, and you look at trends and depending upon the trend and what's happening here and here and here, and I'm not saying that's bad, you have to do this type of speculation. God isn't doing that. God's not speculating with your life. He's not, uh, you know, I'm looking at Tom, let, let me just speculate, okay, depending upon, okay, this and this and this has happened and these things are coming from over here and here, here and here, and he has his wife, he has his kids, there's the church, there's this, 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 this. Okay, I'm speculating. Right now, he's 55. In 10 years, he's going to be the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. In 10 years. 
That's not what God is doing. God is not just stepping back, kind of speculating with, with your life. What, you know, if you're a really good person, then this is basically how your life's going to turn out. Or if you're really bad, this is the direction that your life is going to turn out. Now, again, and we'll find out in just a minute. God's sovereignty and his lack of speculation doesn't mean that we don't have human responsibility or liability. God and his providence has included the free agency of man. But even those decisions that we make are part of God's story in some way. But when bad things happen, we trust that God has a plan. God has a plan. I I may not understand, but God has a plan. I mean, how many bad things have I done in my life where I've hurt others and hurt myself? Can you imagine Simeon and Levi? Can you imagine if you're in the tribe of Simeon and Levi and Reuben? (laughs) And they're reading this? What would you do? I'd be like, do-do-do-do. We're not that can we say we're from the tribe of Judah, right? We're, we're really Judah tribe, right? You can see people going like, I'm going to the tribe of Judah. <laughs> I'm going to step over here. What would you do? This is, it's hard. But you trust that God has a plan. You trust where it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And you trust, verse 18, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. And so you look to the Lord and trust his plan. Do bad things happen? Yes. Bad things happen to Jesus. And if bad things happen to Jesus, bad things are going to happen to us. Until that day when we see Christ. So that's the first map key. Is You know what? <laughs> the journey is crazy. Because of sin, and we live on a cursed earth. But we trust the one that made the story. We trust the map maker and we trust the one that even made the path and the earth itself. We trust our Redeemer. We trust God. He's faithful. Now, second, the second map key. And we'll just look at this today and we'll look at the other map keys later. Second map key. Keep pressing forward by getting right with God or face the consequences. Right, so I'm up there hiking, and Jim Owen says, "Tom, you know, as we're coming down, just you can be behind me, but stay about a hundred feet and go off to the right or left. And that way, I won't get hit by a tumbling rock that you might happen to this lodge." Tom, do you hear me? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I I wasn't listening. And then as we're going down, I stepped on a rock, and it began to tumble. And I, I think I paused, like if I say something. He's going to know it was me. If I don't say anything, maybe I can get away with it, right? <laughs> Some rock became dislodged. So I waited too long, and about the rock's about halfway to him. Jim, look out! But then it was, it was too late. And so there was a consequence. He forgave me, but there was a consequence to that. There was a knowledge that he gave me. And that knowledge should have empowered me. But I didn't listen to it. And so then I heard him. In the same way, God has given this text about what will happen to Reuben, about what happened and what will happen to Reuben and Simeon and Levi 
for them to repent where they are now, but also for those folks afterwards, for the other Israelites and for you and I to see what they did and to see if there's any resemblance of them and us and for us to repent of that too before God and his sovereign purposes and plans bring those consequences to bear. Sin does have a consequence. Praise God, we have verse 18. Oh, for your salvation, oh Lord, I wait. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we're not going to delve down deep into each individual tribe. That, that could take 12 sermons. But we are going to look this morning, and the rest of the time we have it, Simeon, Levi, Reuben. So, so specifically for these brothers... That is, that we need to stop and consider our own lives and that our actions can have consequences. And first, we can look at Reuben. You can look at verse 3 and, and 4. So Reuben was the firstborn. So as a firstborn in that culture, he would have had the, the rights to be the authoritative leader of the tribe. Basically, he would, have, he would have replaced Jacob, right? In the line of the patriarchs, it could have been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Reuben. Culturally, that's the way it should have gone. But that's not the way that it went. And here, the text is saying why. Reuben was, was strong, he had might, he had strength, there was power, there was a... Nobility, you can see that in verse 3, preeminent and dignity, but yet uncontrolled as water. And it's the idea of tumultuous water. Have you ever gone whitewater rafting? Who's gone whitewater rafting? Have you, have you ever fell out of the raft? Have you, raise your hand if you've fallen out of the raft. So I've gone whitewater rafting, especially back east, and we would always turn the raft, the guide would, we'd turn the raft around and we'd go down backwards and fall out. But it was when it was gentle. So one time I went whitewater rafting up here in April with a certain person. And I fell out of the raft and I didn't think it was that bad of rapids, but I was wearing a wetsuit it was oversized and a life jacket. <laughs> it, it was not with Craig. It was, I was not with Craig. I was with somebody else. <laughs> but I was in a river that Craig had taken us to one time, and it was in April, and it was raging. I thought at that moment, I thought, I'm dead. I, I, I'm going to get to heaven. And the Lord's going to say, Tom, you know, you got martyred by a rock, and somebody didn't even throw it to you. You, you hit it yourself. I was just balancing on these rocks. <laughs> Oh, man, I had bruises all over my legs. Finally, I was able to climb out of the stream. That's the picture here in verse 4. And it says, uncontrolled as water. That water that comes down, maybe through, you know, it's April and it's melting and it used to be a nice stream, but now it's just this turbulent, riotous water. And, and if you were to jump in there, you're just going to get beat up like crazy. It's uncontrollable. You you can't tame it. And that is, verse 4 is saying, that is the passion, the desire of Reuben. 
So much so that he committed immorality like 1 Corinthians 5. So before there was 1 Corinthians 5, there was Reuben. He was very immoral. And you can see that at the end of verse 4. He defiled his father and sinned against his father and his father's family. And there was a consequence of that. God forgives. Praise God for his forgiveness. But some of our sin will have consequences. It did for Reuben, and it will for us at times. Even Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. And note what he says in verse 7. Cursed be their anger and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will dispose them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Reuben loses power and authority of being the ruler of the tribes. And you can read the Old Testament. There's not a lot about how heroic Reuben is. There's not a lot of virtuous things said about the tribe of Reuben. There are about Judah and some other tribes. Reuben loses preeminence. And then you have Simeon and Levi. It wasn't that they were sexually immoral, but they were cruel. How would you like it if God said to you, you're a cruel person? That's what it says in verse 7. If you remember, basically, some men, a prince and his men, had abused one of their sisters. And their response to that was to kill Every male, there was part of this people group. Every male. They committed genocide. Not only that, they went to the oxen and they cut the hamstring in a certain way so then the oxen couldn't really do work. So the the moms and the women and the young men and young men that maybe were plowing the fields, they couldn't even plow the fields. That's why it says in verse 5, their swords are implements of violence. Well, that's kind of odd. Aren't always swords, by nature, implements of violence? (laughs) There's a difference between Abraham and Simeon and Levi. Did Abraham use a sword? Yes. Did he kill people? Yes. It seems so. He got a group of men together, hundreds of men, and they went and they rescued Lot and they attacked another army and defeated that army. Certainly, Caleb and Joshua used a sword. And they were godly men. Watch the difference. Abraham was not seeking unjust vengeance beyond what would be just. That's the problem, is that, and it says here, Simeon and Levi, they are carried by anger. They're carried by their own wrath. It's not that they are doing the will of God. They're doing their own will out of just unrighteous vengeance. And there's many movies today, and there have been since I've been alive, that that can glorify vengeance. Books and movies. Vengeance! The Bible says, let God have the vengeance. But here, these men are so wrathful, 
so consumed by, look at verse 6, in their self-will. There is a time to be angry. Ephesians 4 says, be angry. But that anger should be over unrighteousness and it should be dealt with quickly and it must be measured by truth and by grace and by being appropriate. And these men were not. Their anger consumed them and they sinned greatly. And you can see, Jacob says, he doesn't even want to be, he doesn't want them involved in his counsel. He doesn't want his honor united with them. And he says that what they did and that that attitude they had should be cursed and I would disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And you might remember that actually parts of Simeon, parts of their tribe in 2 Corinthians 15 migrated down into Judah. Even Simeon with Reuben ended up not having preeminence. In fact, the only tribes that for a while at least remained faithfulness to God were who? Judah and Benjamin. But all the others did not. The Levites, eventually they became corrupted. Eventually they became a corrupted priesthood. But Simeon, though they might have had their own land, they as a people, they were dispersed and scattered to all the other tribes. But I believe that the main point here that God is saying to to Israel and to you and I is that sin has a consequence. Yes, the Lord is gracious. God forgives. But Hebrews 12.5 is real. Hebrews 12.5 is a verse that I don't like to read. I don't... Personally, I, I don't like to preach James 1, 2 through 4 about various trials. I, I don't like to preach that. I, I don't like to preach 1 Peter 1, 6 about various trials. Because I think if I preach certain things, then God's going to take me through those things so I learn it firsthand so I can preach it better. And then, and then I preach this passage. So now I'm scared. <laughs> Hebrews twelve five. And you have forgotten exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And I think God... He chose, it says in Deuteronomy 7, he chose Israel. He had a love for Simeon, Levi, and Reuben. Because he loved them, he disciplined them. I had I had a friend, and it was also the friend, the friend of Victor Bruce. And this friend that we had years ago had cheated on his wife, and had a couple of children, and when his children, not Victor Bruce, this other man that was cheating on his wife, when his children, when his children would maybe pee in their pants, he would take their underwear and he would put them on his children's head. And he went to the church that I went to in Los Angeles. So, 
Victor and I went and asked if we could talk with him. And he was a friend. And I had been in India, but I was back on furlough. And he was very friendly and open and and talked with us. And he confessed that the things that he did, that they were wrong and it was sin. And he, he knew they were sin. And so we asked him to repent and he said no. And so after talking for a while, we explained to him that if he continued in this attitude, that according to Hebrews 12, verse 5, that God would discipline him. And he said he knew and he understood that. And so he said, okay. Two years later, he died from brain cancer. And so when we look at this chapter of Genesis 49... We must understand that verse 18 is real, too. That God forgives, God saves, in Him there's redemption. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But there's also, I think, this warning to start off this wonderful passage. And the passage will we'll talk as it goes to the passage. It will talk about Jesus and, and redemption and all the blessings that flow from that. But first of all is this, this warning. You can't hide from the consequences of sin in yourself. The only place you can hide is in Christ. That's the only place you can hide is in Christ. Sin is real. The Bible is real. Jesus is real. And Jesus is king. He's king. And one day we're all going to stand before him. Everybody in this room will stand before Jesus Christ. All of us. And I sin just like you. We all sin. We're exhorted by this text in Genesis 49. Anger, immorality, especially those two sins. If you have a lot of anger, if you have a lot of sexual immorality, repent of it. Would you take a fork and stick it in a a bucket of water and twirl around it, get the fork really wet and then just go up to the socket and just stick the fork in the socket. Just stick it in. That's what you're doing if you pursue anger and sexual immorality and there's no repentance. It's like you're trying to shock yourself to death. Why would you do that? It's stupid. And I think that's what the Lord is saying to the nation, Israel, and to us, and to me this morning. We keep going forward. God has planned all things. How does this fit into God being sovereign over all things? When I do something bad and I don't repent over my sin and I don't repent over it, God has it in his plan to bring consequences to me. And then I might end up saying, God, how can you do this to me? It's part of the plan of God that if I continue to press into sin, the Lord loves me enough to draw me back to him. And that's part of the plan and purpose of God, out of love. I pray that God would give us all ears, ears and eyes to see, to understand. Father, we thank you for your word. I know this can be a hard message. I didn't plan it. You planned it in your word. It's right there in the text with Simeon, Levi, and Reuben. Lord, may I take heed, first of all. I'm preaching this, Lord. So may I take heed and flee from any kind of anger and 
immorality, Lord, and pursue you and always be getting right with you all the time, Lord. Lord, bless your people, minister to them, show them your love, and grow them in Christ. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.